Well, this morning we resume our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We have for a number of weeks, number of months actually, through 14 chapters, studied Paul's teaching, widely considered to be uh, the greatest expression and application of the gospel ever written. And then a few weeks ago, as we entered into Romans chapter 15, we turned our attention from Paul's teaching to Paul's person, as in Romans 15, Paul speaks very biographically about himself, his life, and his mission. And this morning we come to Romans chapter 16, and we turn our attention yet again from one particular person to a particular community of Christ followers, uh, which, like Paul, the apostle, and all the other apostles, had turned their world upside down, not only in their own community, but as they participated uh, through prayer, support, and engaging in Paul's apostolic um, mission of church planting. We read this morning from Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of our God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, literally a deacon, of the church of Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apennetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who, was, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Again, as I said at first service, not the guy of Greek mythology. Just thought I'd point that out. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we come now clinging to your promise that your word never comes back empty, and clinging to that promise, knowing that you continue to speak by your power of your spirit in accord and by your word. Open our minds and open our hearts that this word might not only instruct and inform us, but that it would form us, that that which we understand by your grace would also shape our hearts, our affection, and then therefore, not only the way we see the world, 
uh, but the way we live in this world among one another, among our neighbors, and among the nations. Lord, we cling to this and we pray that as you are at work within us, shaping us, forming us, knitting us together as one body that has one Lord, Jesus Christ, we would also worship you by listening for you to speak, by obeying the word as you have instructed us. To you be all glory in the church. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, through Christ we pray. Amen. Comedian Stephen Wright has said, I read the dictionary. I thought it was a poem about everything. Another comedian has said this, I am reading the dictionary because I figure when I finish I have read every other book that's ever been written. Now, I'm not sure why these have come to mind this week as I was studying. I, I suspect it's probably because our, our text this week is primarily a, a list of names, which for many of us, I'm sure, seems about as interesting and probably as informative as reading through uh, the dictionary. You know, we, we know these are people that Paul is greeting, but we don't know these people. We never met them. We never even heard of most of these people. And so the inclination for most of us, if we're honest, is to say, let's just kind of skip this. Let's just move on. Let's get back into the narrative where we can understand what Paul is instructing us or is teaching us and just go over, you know, just, just skip this, this list because, you know, while all Scripture is God-breathed, what could we possibly gain from this? Now, if that's your mindset, I understand and to be honest, there's times when my own study and reading through the book of Romans that I have skipped over this list, that I have moved straight from chapter 15 to uh, chapter, seven, uh, chapter 16 and begin in my reading in verse 17. But what I hope that we're going to see this morning is that if we are to make that our practice, if we never read and stop and contemplate what God has revealed to us in this list of people, this, his word, uh, that we are actually robbed of some tremendous and blessed insight and information. When we read this list, even though it is a list, there's a number of things that we are able to gain from it. It just depends on how you look at it. We could look at this list and then see uh, the evidence of the diversity in that church and the beauty and the dynamics that make up the diversity, whether it's ethnic or, or racial or uh, socioeconomic, there is a diversity that is here that characterizes it as assumed to be part of the church of Christ because there is only one church that is made up of people from every tribe and nation and every, every tongue. And, and so we could look at this list and we would certainly see that and gain principles uh, that would shape the way that we view the world and view our own church. And, and then in light of that, uh, we would be able to think of ways in which we ought to minister, uh, in which we would reflect what is near to the heart of God. Or we could look at this list and recognize that in this list, there are as many women listed as there are men. And we would see the prominence of women in the church in Rome. And we would see Paul's attitude about women because Paul is so often wrongly miscast as being highly misogynistic. And yet I would challenge anybody to read this list that has as many women as men and then read what Paul says about the women that he is a greeting here. And not only the affection, but the respect that he has for them and the roles that they play in the building up of the church and the mission of God. I challenge anybody to do an honest reading of just this section of the book of Romans and then tell me, yeah, Paul's a misogynist. I don't think you can do it. 
We can look at it in any, any number of ways, but this morning what I want to do is I just want to focus very simply on two characteristics of the people in this church that ought to be characteristics of the Christian church, Christians and the church everywhere in, in every age. These are characteristics that we should be cultivating if we are going to be a life-changing, culture-shaping people as God has not only called us to be, but that he has sent us to be, commissioned us to be, just as the churches of the New Testament are. And the first characteristic that we need to note of the people that are on this list is these were ordinary people. The list here is of people who lived in Rome, and they worked their jobs, they served their church, and they invested their lives in the mission of God. They were uh, in their communities, and again, as we've said multiple times through our study, this is a missionary support letter, and so they were participating uh, in the advancement of the gospel to other peoples uh, through Paul and their support there. As we read this list, we recognize some of these people at different times may have participated in the church planting that Paul was doing in other areas outside uh, of Rome. Uh, we see that these are people that were fully invested in the, in the mission of God, uh, wherever it is that they happen to be, uh, and yet we should not miss this. They were all ordinary people like you and me. And this ought to be good news for us. Because as I've challenged at times about our engagement in the community and the fact that the church should be an instrument of influence in the, and, and even transformation locally and, and globally, I suspect that there are, are some who embrace that, know that is what we're calling, we're called to be. But then may think to themselves, but I'm not Paul. I don't have some apostolic calling. Nobody's ever going to make, list me as the greatest missionary in history. I'm not going to be a catalyst for a mission movement that evangelizes and plants church in a 900-mile radius from Jerusalem to present-day Albania and then launches others to go minister from those churches as well. Nobody's ever going to make, consider me to be perhaps the greatest theologian who has ever lived. And to boot all of those other qualifications that the apostle has, we, we see that Paul has written not only this letter that most consider the greatest theological work, but he's written 13 books of the New Testament. Almost half of the New Testament come from Paul's hand. 13 books, not only of the New Testament, of the Bible, more than anyone else who has written in the Bible. As I did a quick survey in my head, the only other ones that, you know, that come to mind, or, or Moses wrote, his credited was writing five books. And Solomon's credited with three, or at least portions of at least three. And Paul has written 13 books. Now, some of them are quite short. They might be considered short story, and some of them are you know, not much longer than a postcard. But it's a pretty significant, prolific writer. So you've got this missionary, pioneer missionary, missionary, a movement uh, launcher, theologian, author, whose writings are being read 2,000 years later. I write a pastor's note two, three times a month. I wonder if anybody reads it two days later. He's being read 2,000 years later. Not that I expect to be in the same place where Paul is, but it's just very easy to feel like we have something that we're called to do, but have no idea how we're going to do that. 
And it might even be that say, look, even, even if I recognize that I have, uh, I can play a part in this, my giftings are entirely different. I wouldn't, even if I could make a significant contribution, I wouldn't make the same kind of contribution that the Apostle Paul is making. Have you ever felt that way? I, I do a lot. Because when we look at the enormity of what we are invited to participate in, it just is very easy to feel incredibly insignificant, just as we feel very humble when you stand by the seashore in front of the ocean and realize, you know, we're not much bigger than one of the specks of the sand when you consider the whole the globe and the ocean and uh, things like that. And our culture is no help. Because our American culture is very much about being extraordinary. If you want to be somebody, you've got to be somebody. If you want to do something, you've got to be somebody. You've got to be better than everybody else. And because nobody's going to listen to you if you're a nobody. You're not somebody who is special. And so when you consider yourself to be quite ordinary, our culture kind of makes you feel like you're just, you know, selling out, compromising. You're willing to be a loser. Because our culture does not really respect that which is ordinary. I like the way that uh, the theologian Michael Horton uh, expresses uh, the, the mindset that many of us, even as Christians, have when we consider the enormity of what we're called to do as compared to what we think of ourselves and how we are to convey that. Horton says this, ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my kid is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, and has, an, has ordinary friends and works an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We have to leave a mark, have a legacy, make a difference. That's the American way. And with that environment that we are born into in the water in which we swim, it is easy for that mindset to begin to shape the way that we not only look at the world, but our place in the world and just feel incredibly insignificant and insignificant leads us to feel incredibly inadequate. What I want you to see from this list here in Romans 16 is this, is that for the mission of God to thrive, for our neighbors to come to know Jesus Christ, for churches to be planted and missionaries raised up and sent out, for the gospel to renew not only our community, but communities throughout the globe, it takes a whole bunch of normal, ordinary people, people like you and me who live our lives by the grace of God to the glory of God. That's what it takes because Paul is commending these people for their participation. He's inviting them to participate in what God is doing through Paul and through those who, who participate, very ordinary people. And we see that not only in the pages of the scripture, but we see it in the pages of church history as well. On April 21st, 1855, a man of no great significance, walked into a shoe store to visit with a, an angry young man who had visited his church and Sunday school. The man who walked into the shoe store, he went in order to talk, follow up with this angry young man. And with that time, he, he shared the gospel with them, saying, look, you're angry. You, 
you, you know, clearly you're, you're not happy. You need Jesus, and this is the reason that you need Jesus. Not only will he resolve the, the anger that you have in your life, but grants peace beyond what you're able to grasp. And the Holy Spirit being at work in that young man, he heard these words coming from this ordinary man named Edward Kimball and gave his life to Christ. The angry young man, his name is Dwight L. Moody, who is considered to be among the greatest evangelists of the 19th century and is widely credited for leading as many as a million people to Christ through his preaching and crusades, the ministries that he launched, and even the college that continues to exist as Moody Bible Institute today. An ordinary man shared with an angry young man, and you see tremendous fruit that has come from that. It was only a few months later, nine months actually, in another part of the world, in England, there was a, a, a lost young man who was searching for something, knowing somehow that the answer would be found through religion, but didn't know exactly what that meant. And so on January 6, 1856, a young man named Charles Spurgeon ventured into a church accidentally. I could paraphrase it and summarize it, but I'm just going to read Spurgeon for uh, one. He tells his own story better, and he's a whole lot funnier than you might imagine, and I wouldn't do it justice. So, so listen to what Spurgeon writes about his own coming to faith in Christ. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen, maybe 15 people. I had heard about the primitive Methodists and how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter much to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved, and if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it's well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. And the text was, look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth from Isaiah chapter 45. And Spurgeon goes on. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began this way. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting. It ain't lifting your foot. It ain't lifting your figure. It is just look, looking. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, and then it begins to paint a picture of Christ. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on a cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. 
When he had gone on about in length and managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few people present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearances before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw it once, the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. An incredible story. A guy who was searching, miserable. The snow prevents him from going to where he wanted to go to worship, so he finds this church that we would look at and say, why would anybody go there? A dozen people? Uh, it's got to be a dead church. The pastor doesn't even show up. And then one guy gets up and stands up. We don't know if he was supposed to stand up or not, but clearly Spurgeon was not impressed with him in any way, shape, or form. And he gets up, and an ordinary guy who's not even named, and I have no idea what his name is. I don't know whether Spurgeon remembered the guy's name. taking the power of God's Word and explaining it just very simply, the power of the Holy Spirit brings to faith Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, and the great fruit that has emanated from his ministry during the end of the 19th century in England and all the missionary force that went out beyond there. Two incredibly ordinary guys, one whose name we know but almost nobody knows, the other guy who's not even named, an incredible bearing fruit. There's a legacy that goes with the fact that these ordinary people, God had used them as they were faithful. And from this list of Romans 16, it tells you that you can make a significant contribution simply by being a faithful person, working at your job, being a good neighbor, living to the glory of God, doing what God has gifted you to do where God has planted you to do it. We look at this list and we recognize it should be an encouragement to ordinary people like you and me because it's an extraordinary God who is at work in us and through us. But there's another characteristic that is evident to the people on this list, which is also true of those two men who shared the gospel, one in a shoe store, one from a pulpit. And that characteristic is faithfulness. They were ordinary, but they were also faithful. And these verses and the people that are listed, while they are ordinary, they're not just ordinary. They are ordinary, and yet they are faithful people. They're people who rest in the grace of Jesus Christ, and they live their lives in harmony with the, the grace and the calling that God had given to them. Look at the people that are in this list and note some of the reasons that Paul commends them. And it will begin with Phoebe in verse, uh, in verse 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, the servant. And I said earlier as I was reading it, the word actually is deacon. And it's an important passage, which makes her an important person, though she's not widely known. And the reason it's significant is because theologians continue to wrestle with something, and it's a practical application in the church. 
In the Greek, there are male and female endings like there are in other languages. Remember my you know, seventh grade Spanish. And so you could tell when in, the same, in, in the same thing. And so if the word was supposed to be servant here, um, then it would be diakonia. It would be, it would be a female ending uh, to the words. It would describe her as a deacon. You could call her a deaconess, but it would just simply mean servant. But in this particular case, Paul's saying, I commend my sister Phoebe, the deacon. It has a male ending to the Greek, which suggests that she was probably a deacon in the church of Centria. And it's important that we recognize just because things don't fit into the way that we would like to order things, we can't ignore scripture, nor does it make a particular case. But we, we wrestle with that. But we see that this woman was respected in her own church and was respected in the church of Rome because of her, her heart and, and what she did. And then Paul commends her. He doesn't commend her. He recognizes the fact that she was a deacon. And then he commends her for this because he says, because she has been a patron of many. What that tells us about Phoebe is this, is that she was a wealthy woman. And she was a generous woman. That she shared her wealth to take care of people, to help people who were in need. In our church, she would be one who not only gave to uh, the Mercy Ministry, but if the deacons had a particular case, they would probably call her and say, you know, we have this person has a need and, you know, we don't want to bring attention to it. And Phoebe had a history and a record of just helping people and, and being a patron of many people. And it wasn't even just Mercy Ministry because Paul says she's been my patron as well, which means that she used her wealth and she supported mission movement. She supported Paul and his mission. She supported others probably, therefore, would support others who had gone out uh, in order to share the gospel. Phoebe is commended uh, for her faithfulness, her, her, her hospitality, her, her, her generosity. Then we see right after that, uh, greet uh, Prissa and Aquila. You might, if you read through Acts, know them as Priscilla and, and Aquila. Uh, Prissa was just her nickname and tells you a little bit about the relationship the, the Apostle Paul has with them. And greet the church that is in the house. So these were, this was a couple. In, in many ways, they are ordinary, but they had an extraordinary opportunity for fruit in their hospitality and hosting the church in their home, not only here, but they had done it elsewhere as well. Uh, they, they just invested their lives of, into people. Most of the people, we have no idea who they are, but we do know that not only did they welcome the Apostle Paul in, they had adopted some other student at another time, a man named Apollos, who was considered to be one of the greatest preachers in the biblical times. He was gifted in elocution. He was with a way with words. Uh, but the reason that he was uh, spending time with them as he preached in their church, he would go and he would sound really, really, really good, but then he would come to their house and Priscilla and Aquila would say, okay, you know, you sound good, but we need to give you something to actually say. Uh, you sound good, but, you know, your theology is all off here. You need, to, you need to kind of be more biblical. You need more depth. You need more understanding. And they mentored this guy. So he then, later on, became even more powerful because he not only had great skill in speaking, he had great substance in what he had said as well. And as I look at this, I can't help but thinking about what we do here in this church at times when we have historically, and as hopefully again next fall, um, participate in our Adopt-A-Student program. We have in our own church, I, I know the Wayne and Kathy Buell had adopted a student a number of years ago who's now a pastor in the area, a great guy and a very fruitful pastor. And so, but they just invited him in, became part of their home while he was a student at William & Mary, and he's now bearing fruit uh, in, in, in our region. A few years ago, I met a man here who came up, introduced himself as Scott Redd, who's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. And he said that he had been a student at William & Mary, he and his wife both, and they attended Grace Covenant. Uh, whoever it was that had adopted them in our adoptive student program had moved on long ago and they weren't here and they didn't know a, a lot of the people because it's been a, a number of years. 
but through the hospitality, there was an investment in somebody who grew up to be significant in, in some ways uh, because of his stature and his position. But, but there were ordinary people investing in mostly other ordinary people, and out of those ordinary people, some God uses in unusual and extraordinary ways. We have Preston and Sarah with us. Well, Preston Sarah, there we go. Um, and uh, today, they would be great examples also of that very same thing. Somebody adopted them. I probably knew a who at one time, but I don't remember now. Uh, and then we kicked them out of the country and sent them to go minister to Syrian people, but, um, which they're doing faithfully. And, uh, and so just ordinary people. You don't consider yourself spectacular, I guess, do you? Uh, put them on the spot. But anyway, um, but ordinary faithfulness bearing fruit because other ordinary faithful people have engaged in their lives. Paul goes on and he talks about Mary who says, work hard for you. And this is the person that is always at the church who is just doing things behind the scenes, setting up for church suppers and, you know, coordinating things, making phone calls, never bringing the limelight, uh, never bringing attention to themselves. And our church is full of people like that, but not full enough. In other words, if you want to be one of those people, we got, we'll make room. Paul says in Adronicus and Junia, fellow prisoners of the gospel. And so apparently these, this couple had ministered elsewhere. And they were willing to minister and be faithful to the gospel, even in places where the government wasn't a particular fan of it. And had been arrested and spent time in prison as a result of their faithfulness to the gospel. And so Paul refers to them as, their, as the fellow prisoners. Urbanus in verse 9, my fellow worker, kind of similar to, uh, uh, to, to Mary who worked hard, but worked not so much in the church, or they might have done that, but is known for his work outside of the church. And that would be the people in our church who are working at Grove Outreach or volunteering in some other way in the community. And they are fellow workers for the sake of the gospel, whether in the community or someplace else. And then Paul, one of my favorites in this list, I don't know exactly why, but it's, it just cracks me up, is Rufus's mother in verse 13. I mean, she's not even named. You know, command Rufus, oh yeah, and Rufus's mom. I mean, she's just Rufus's mom. That's just it. That's what Paul's commanding her. Yeah, say, you know, greet Rufus's mom. And there was something about this lady that she was just like the mother to everybody. Everybody she met, she gave a hug, and she was just going to be their mother. And Paul said, and she was like a mother to me at one time. And so because of just her being her, she's not even named, but her being her, she brought encouragement and renewal to the Apostle Paul, refreshment to the Apostle Paul sometimes. And as a result, she is credited or deserves as much, uh, deserves part of the credit for any of the fruit that is born through his missionary endeavors. An ordinary person doing ordinary things, faithfully bearing fruit. All these people are shaped by the gospel and they live simple, impactful faithfulness. Or as Paul would later say, they had a faith that expressed itself through love. Actually, I said later, he actually wrote that earlier, but uh, in, in, in tribulations. Jerry Bridges, the prolific writer, uh, says this, the dictionary defines faithful as Firm in adherence to promises or an observance of duty, which is a good definition. And Bridges goes on and he says, some common synonyms are dependable, reliable, trustworthy, and loyal. And I, you know, they may be synonyms, but I also think that they're the ingredients that make up faithfulness. And the word also has connotation of absolute honesty and integrity. And so this is the characteristic of people who just do what they're supposed to do with honesty, integrity, and and continually. But faithfulness, we need to also understand, is not just the acts that we do. It is the acts that we do over a period of time. 
when somebody just goes and does something and they didn't quit it, it might be good, but we won't call that faithfulness unless there's a pattern of people doing that. Until there's time, until there's a pattern of something, it doesn't really, we don't really think of it in terms of faithfulness. And that's important because many of us, whether we've been engaged and experienced in this or whether we know that we need to be engaged, we just have this tendency and this, this misunderstanding. People go on their first short-term mission uh, trip almost inevitably think that I'm going to go, I'm going to be there for five days, I'm going to change the world. Now, some people are not quite that arrogant, but I've spent a number of years working with the uh, MTW in, uh, on the Cherokee Reservation, and every year the new teams that come in, there are a number of people that they're not going to change the world. They're just going to reach everybody on the reservation in five days, and just the whole Cherokee tribe is going to come profess faith. If you've been on a short-term mission, and you might have had that same mindset the first time you went, but you realize only after a few days, or certainly by the time you come home, you probably haven't changed the world. You may have participated in the changing of somebody's life, but you've been changed far more than you changed anybody. But over time, a pattern of investing your life, returning, developing that relationship, or committing yourself and investing to go to a particular place, seeing that, that's what is faithfulness, and that's ultimately what bears fruit. Faithfulness is evident over time. I love the way that Jerry, uh, the way that um, Eugene Peterson uh, expresses it. Faithfulness is characterized as this, is a long obedience in the same direction. In other words, you're just being faithful and doing what you're supposed to do, moving yourself toward heaven, moving yourself toward the gospel, and there is fruit that is born through that pattern of faithfulness. And what's really is amazing as we look at this list and we think of other people that have, have invested themselves, ordinary people investing themselves, we actually, through that faithfulness, recognizing that it's not about our being extraordinary, but through ordinary people being faithful, we actually are able to then cultivate and develop and leave the legacy that the world says we're supposed to leave that we think that we need to become somebody to have. It is the faithful, ordinary person who often leaves the greatest legacy. And I want to just share for a moment about the legacy that I have a part to be, uh, to be part of. Uh, due to marriage, uh, not, I married into it. I didn't uh, come by it naturally or honestly. I had to get somebody to marry me for it. But uh, I, did, that was, I didn't know that I had a legacy with it. Just clear that up first. But that was a package, you know, came as the surprise package, part of the package. But uh, a man named Isaac DeBose was born in 1665 in Normandy, France. He lived until 1721. Uh, but before he had passed in the late 1600s, um, he was part of the first wave of the Huguenots that made their way from France under the persecution when the Huguenots, the Protestants, were being persecuted and, and, and by the uh, Catholic uh, France. Uh, a number came over to South Carolina and settled. He was on that first boat with the first of, the, of those who came over to South Carolina, and he happened to be the minister who was on that boat, and he established a church and was the minister to that first group of Huguenots in South Carolina. And while they ministered in South Carolina, faithfully around, uh, Columbia, around the uh, uh, Charleston area, his wife Suzanne prayed a prayer, not only that they would be fruitful in ministering to the people of their community and of their generation, but she prayed that from their family line, God would raise up somebody in every generation to come after that would engage in full-time mission or pastoral ministry. And Carolyn and I are the 11th generation in a row from that woman's prayer. Now, it was not even just us, because we've been amazed, and as incredible as that is, when I went to seminary, we made a friend, uh, his name is Curtis DuBose, who comes from that same line, 
from that same prayer, but happened to be a descendant from, you know, a different line. So one of the sons of, of, of Isaac and Suzanne Dubose, but his bearing fruit. There's a lot of Duboses throughout South Carolina. It came from that line, and a lot of them are ministers of the gospel and have gone on to be missionary. Curtis went on and was a missionary in Africa for a number of years, teaching at African Bible College. He's now an associate pastor at a church in, in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, but tremendous fruit. And then through the line that is Carolyn's line, in the mid to late 1800s was a man named Hampton DuBose, Carolyn's great, great, great whatever, great, however many greats are in there, grandfather, who was the first American missionary to China. He labored alongside Hudson Taylor, but it was Hampton DuBose who was the first to adopt the Chinese dress and told Hudson Taylor this would be a good idea. Hudson Taylor agreed. Hudson had a better PR guy, you know, so people know about him, but he planted a church that exists today. Carolyn's father had the opportunity to preach there several, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's recognized in China by the state, but somehow they're able to preach the gospel faithfully there as well. And so there's still fruit born from his ministry in, in China. He's actually left a legacy when Gene and Steve Louie were part of Grace Covenant. They had heard of him because he's part of the Chinese history. And they brought a book where there's a whole chapter on Carolyn's great-great-grandfather, Hampton DuBose. A few years ago, I was laboring, I was serving with MTW at Cherokee, and I had met uh, some family, a church that came up from Florida. And as I was talking with one of the families and they were sharing their story, they were part of Hampton DuBose Academy, which is a private boarding school in Florida. And that was intriguing and they were just telling their story. And I kept on thinking, something just doesn't sound right here because this is Carolyn's story and we don't know who you are. So it can't be your story. What we found out as we talked more and more, and her name is Rebecca DuBose. Uh, our daughter is Rebecca DuBose Griffith. Uh, that was one of the women that was part of that, of that group is that they were part of that prayer line as well that broke off much more recent because their line goes through the sons of Hampton DuBose. Carolyn's family is from one brother and their line is from another brother. And so we don't know whether we are the last in our family part of the tree in terms of this legacy. Our, our boys uh, have chosen other careers. Our one son thought about ministry and decided, as many PKs do, uh, I think I'll do something else. Um, you know, we don't know what that will be. He continues to uh, to uh, teach the teens in his church. Our other son is a deacon in his church. Whether they go into professional ministry and vocational ministry, you know, that's yet to be seen. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with Rebecca as far as uh, where her future is. But even if it ends with us, that legacy continues because some ordinary faithful people in God's providence moved, ministered faithfully, and prayed for that legacy. I realized after the first service, I have another legacy too. That's it's much shorter and much simpler. But I, I, I'm the what fourth or fifth, depending on how I measure, in, in line of people who are committed to being faithfully proclaiming the gospel from the pulpit of this church. And, and we need for you to continue to pray. Not only that I and Camper remain faithful, but how, until Jesus comes back, that whoever occupies this pulpit, that they would be faithful to the gospel of Christ. That this church would never compromise. That's a legacy, and that is your legacy as you pray and as you are part of this church. Because as I think about it, I, I really, I, I, I don't really want to just live a nice life. I, I want to leave a legacy. I am proud to be part of a legacy. There is a, a legacy in Carolyn's family because of her ancestors and were just simply faithful. And the fruit of that has, is evident on multiple continents for multiple generations. To leave a legacy, you give yourself to faithfulness. You give yourself to faithfulness now. 
You don't have to be something and then be faithful. It's just be faithful now to give yourself to a faith that expresses itself through love to your neighbors, to whoever you have an opportunity to. Because as it's been said by people who are much wiser than I, the mission of God rises and falls on the backs of ordinary people who love Jesus and who are committed to live faithfully, intentionally engaged on his mission. That can be you. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for this list that speaks far more than we would imagine. But we pray your spirit would speak to us in many ways, and particularly our longing to be faithful, even if the world would consider us insignificant. Use us and use our work that our name might not be great, but the world and our neighbors would see that your name is great because you yourself are great. To you, our God, we pray with thanksgiving that you would have all glory in the church, throughout the world, even as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.